Welcome to the Kingsway Christian Fellowship Home Service. We hope that you'll be blessed as you listen to this audio sermon streamed live from Melbourne, Australia. Kingsway Christian Fellowship is a family Bible-based non-denominational church preaching Jesus Christ, based in Wonturner. Visit www.kingswaychristianfellowship.com. Now here is Elder Com Doyle. Okay, very warm welcome to one and all this morning. And uh, it is a privilege to be asked to share the word of God this morning. I was driving in this morning, I just down the road there coming by the what's normally the market. And this morning there's it's a COVID-19 testing center, and I was just thinking to myself, we may not know what the world has in store for us this year, but Jesus Christ certainly does. So we look to him. And I think we've heard this morning mentioned on a few occasions that uh, you know we're not to be overly worried or stressed or burdened, but to trust in him. I have a question this morning, and the question is, who is Jesus to you? And uh, I guess that could be the title of what I have to speak about. But before I go into it, let's just open in a word of prayer and ask for the Lord to, to bless his word out to you this morning and to help me to be able to, to bring it forward. So. We do thank you, Lord. We lift up your name this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the praises that have gone forth before. And Lord, we um, just want to um, be attentive now, Lord, to what you have to say in your word. And I ask, Lord, that you um, just uh, help people to receive this morning, Lord. Help the hearts that are are, um, struggling, Lord, or maybe partly closed to be open this morning. And May the word find fertile soil. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So just to uh, set a little bit of a context this morning, in the book of Matthew, and we, we all know this scripture very well, it's Matthew 16. And in verses 13 to 16 there, there's a pivotal moment where Peter finally has a revelation of the true identity of Jesus. And you'll find this in Matthew. You'll also find it in the Gospel of Mark. Now, just to set the, um, the geographical scene and the topical scene, um, it says at the opening that they were in the coasts of Caesarea Philippi. I've got to mention a few places this morning, and our sister Yahav will probably recognize where I'm talking about. But the um, Caesarea Philippi, it's about 35 kilometers north of Bethsaida. And if you remember back in the scripture, Bethsaida, there was a, an unusual miracle which Jesus performed in that he healed a blind man. And it says he took him by the hand outside of the town, spat in his eyes, rubbed his eye, and then did the same thing again. And in between, the man had some partial vision, and then finally had his sight restored. So it's one of the more unusual healings in the Bible. And um, the place we're talking about, Caesarea Philippi, it's um, an ancient city, and it's... uh, if you, go, if you go to a place called Banias, or formerly Panias, it's named after the god Pan, and it's right at the foot of Mount Hermon. And for anybody who knows that area has been there or has seen photographs, Mount Hermon is a, a three-peaked uh, mountain, and each of the peaks is approximately about oh, 900 um, or 9,000 feet, I think, high. So they're snow-capped for uh, most of the year or all of the year. So it's an interesting location. And right down at the bottom of Mount Hermon is where the source, or one of the sources or tributaries 
of the uh, Jordan is. And the Jordan in the, the Bible, it represents the life-giving water of Israel because it's effectively the, the main source of water, or the only major river that flows through the land. So there's a couple of tributaries there. One of them is at this place called Benias. Now, Benias also has a, um, a relevance in that it has a location that's a, a grotto. It's like a grotto or a cave entrance. And it's what's referred to in Scripture further on, we read this morning, as the gates of hell. And not hell as we know it in the sense of Gehenna, the lake of fire, but hell as in Hades or in Sheol, as it says in the Hebrew, representing the underworld. So it's a, it was a place of false worship and pagan worship. Now, it's interesting, if you look at this place now, it's just a, a dry cave. But in previous times, before there was an earthquake there, it was a gushing spring and it spewed forth a huge amount of water. And the writings say that uh, where the spring was, they couldn't measure the depth, that it went down extremely deep. So it has that sort of uh, idea of being a bottomless or an entrance into the underworld as it were. So all sorts of pagan worship took place here. And if you um, look it up, you'll see that there was various temples. There was a, a temple to Caesar, there was a temple to Zeus, there was a temple to Pan. And there's only scattered remains of those left nowadays. And if you look up in the rock face of where this um, uh, spring or grotto is, you find that there's recesses carved in the rock where they had pagan idols. Now, all sorts of unspeakable things took place there. And, um, you know, you could, you could just try picturing in your mind, Jai, what went on, Baal worship and the worship of the god Pan and various other gods. Now, as I said, the cave was believed to the entrance to the underworld, and hence the, the further on in the, in the passage you'll see Jesus talking about the gates of hell. Now, people and animals were thrown alive into this. It, um, it's near the location of Dan, and if you remember in your Old Testament, you'll you'll recall the occasion that that's where the idolatrous worship in the northern kingdom of Israel commenced at that location. And, you know, there was sacrifices, there was idolatrous places, there was high places, there was, you know, people passed through the fire of Moloch, and all sorts of terrible things. And you can read that in 2 Kings 17 and 1 Kings 12 and read all about Jeroboam and how that all happened. Now, everything Jesus does has a purpose. And you could think back to the Old Testament. There was a purpose in the 10 plagues of Egypt. They were putting down or a judgment upon the demonic deities and the idols of Egyptian society at that time. What happens at Caesarea Philippi, it adds further to that meaning of the statement that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church of Jesus. And it's interesting that this is the first mention of the church. And that's before the, what we recognize as the official sort of founding of the church on the day of Pentecost. But there is a significant scripture to the first occasion where a subject is mentioned. So this is a special item here that the church is mentioned by Jesus. And um, it's interesting that it's uh, mentioned also, you know, the church is spoken of in the midst of a place of evil, idolatrous worship and all sorts of pagan ritual. So the spiritual, or the backdrop has a lot of spiritual significance. And, um, you know, particularly when you look at the question that Jesus poses to Peter. So let's just read that passage, Matthew 16, verse 13 to 16. 
and see what it actually says. It says there, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? And uh, they said four things here. They said, some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said unto them, and he repeats again, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. An amazingly powerful statement. So that question that Jesus asked Peter, surrounded by this, what I've just described, that was of vital importance then. It's the first mention of the church. It's a special significance to Peter, who has a revelation from God. And it's the same question that we have to ask ourselves today, and it's no less important of a question. Who is Jesus? Or we want to put it another way, are you following the right Jesus? And um, it's one of the most important questions because how you answer it's going to determine your destiny and it'll also work out in your life and it'll determine how you live your life. Now in the Olivet Discourse further on in Matthew 24, verses 4 to 5, Jesus warns us and he says there, and Jesus answered them and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. So what do we take out of that? It's vitally important to distinguish the real from the counterfeit. And we have to remember that deception can be very, very subtle. Now, just as a way of an example, I remember when I was younger, I don't know if it's still on, but there was a, an interesting TV program. I think it was called What's My Line? And... Um, a group of, say, four people on a panel would, for example, say, each one would say, I'm, for example, a scientist or I'm a famous composer or a famous musician. And each one would say the same thing. And the object of the person playing the game was to actually work out who was telling the truth. Only one was telling the truth. So they go to a, a set of questions. And if you weren't careful, you could actually be quite uh, easily deceived because some people's answers are very, very convincing. And in the end, then, the host would say, will the real musician or the real scientist or whoever please stand up? And um, it's a little bit the same for us when it comes to discerning and uh, knowing the times and knowing what's truthful and what's um, misleading. In that game, the key was to answer the right question, ask the right questions. For us, it's also to ask the right questions, but we say, does it line up with Scripture? Question is, what we see what we're spo what's spoken to us, or what we're observing, does it line up with the Word of God? That's the question. Then you will note then in chapter, or verse 17 of our passage, it says, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Blessed art thou, Simon, bar Jonah, flesh and blood, had not revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. So we need the revelation of God and not of man. That's why we take from that. The salvation is very much of the Lord. And Peter had a revelation. And all of us at one time or another, when we truly came to know the Lord Jesus, we had a revelation of his reality and his, his, um, you know, his reality and, and, and his, his, his meaning in our life. So the next question is, what, what do we do with Jesus? You know, it's an interesting fact 
And uh, anybody who studies history, you'll know that there's far more written about Jesus Christ. You can fill libraries about the ancient writings of Jesus. There's far more written than there is about ancient Rome, about the Caesars. There's far more written than there is about ancient Greece. Or there's far more written than there is about ancient Persia. And you could go on and on. Yet people will readily believe historical records. They'll take it as fact. And then, you know, you could say present day people believe the mass media. They don't necessarily question what they hear on the nine o'clock news or whatever. They accept it. But when it comes to Jesus, it's different. When it comes to Jesus, that topic is raised. The opinions and the views of men go off in multiple directions, all sorts of different directions, some crazy directions. So I want to spend a little bit of time this morning. I want to look at knowing the truth from the counterfeit. Nothing brings discussion to a point like introducing the topic of Jesus. I think we all will have found that out from time to time. So another question, what have men said in the past? So during the life of Christ, men had a lot to say about him and who, who they thought he was. We know that in verse 14 of our theme passage, four different um, sets of characters are posed as, as being the identity. First being John the Baptist. And who is John the Baptist? Jesus says there was no greater born of woman. A holy man willing to die for his faith. Even King Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. And you can read that in Matthew chapter 14, verse 1 to 2. It says there, at that time, Herod, the Tetrarch, Herod of the fame of Jesus, has said unto his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. And therefore, mighty works do show forth themselves in him. So John the Baptist had a big influence on his time. So he was confused with John the Baptist or arisen John the Baptist. The next character mentioned was Elijah. Elijah was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. The Jews were expecting Elijah to return just before Messiah came. In Malachi 4 verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Jeremiah is mentioned a holy prophet who was expected to return also before Messiah came. Or the final, just a generic of or one of the prophets. So prophet, a man sent of God with a message for their time. Or a man in whom dwells the spirit of God, or the, great, or the spirit of the great prophets, I should say. Many people nowadays describe themselves as prophets. Some people, I believe, even hand out business cards the title prophet on it. The schools of prophecy. But um, I question, I question, you know, people can move in prophecy, but I question if there's prophets like the prophets mentioned in the times of Jesus and before. Now, all of these four views, they're elevating Jesus above the status of an ordinary man. They show that the Jews at least believed him to be a great man, and even a holy man. Even nowadays, many say that Jesus was a great man, even a great teacher. I don't know if any of you have read Jordan Peterson or any of his works or listened to some of his, his material on the internet. He's um, quite an interesting uh, man, pre presents some very good 
and wise advice for, for people on how to live their lives. He's a lot to say about Jesus, but as a moral icon, or he talks about the need for man to have divinity or the divine to, um, to help direct him or to um, keep him out of uh, harm's way. And it's fine to discuss philosophy and to reflect on that, but that in itself cannot save mankind. So no philosophical Jesus or no um, Jesus of psychology, whatever, however you want to describe it, whatever Jordan Peterson, for example, molds him into, that's not going to save mankind or save you from sin. It's not sufficient. So we said not everyone in Jesus' day thought he was a great man. Some thought he was even more, nothing more than a nobody. Some even thought, even thought he was an evil man. And we've got some scriptures there just to, to show that. If you read in Mark 6, verse 3, it says, There is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and of Judah, and Simon, are not his sisters here with us. So we find out in that passage that Jesus had quite a family. And they are offended at him, it says. It finishes off. People are still offended by Jesus. Very easy to bring people to a point of offense by talking about the cross or talking about personal sin or talking about the need for Jesus. John 6, verse 42, it says, And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he saith, I come down from heaven? So, you know, they were mocking him. John 9, 24, he was thought of as a sinner. Then again, they called the man that was blind and said unto him, give God the praise. This is the Pharisee speaking. We know this man is a sinner, referring to Jesus. It even questions his birthright. He's thought of as an illegitimate child. If you read John 8, 41, again, the Pharisees, you'll find, you do the deeds of your father. Then they said unto him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. And it gets worse. He was thought of as a devil. If you read in Matthew 12, 24, the Pharisees attributed his miracle of healing uh, the blind and dumb man who was also possessed as he attributed to Satan, to the devil. So I mean, it's pretty offensive. Even a madman. John 10, 20, they called him mad and possessed by the devil. A fool and an object of contempt and scorn. And if you think of the scene around the cross in Matthew 27, 38 to 43, while he's on the cross, who mocks him? The thieves mock him, the scribes mock him, the priests gather around mock him. So, I mean, he's um, held in very low esteem by many. Even his half-brothers had harsh things to say about him. In John 7, verse 3 to 5, we read, His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples may also see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world, for neither did his brethren believe him. And I would say after that, you know, isn't it amazing that such things could have been said while he was alive, walking on the ground of this earth, preaching, doing good works, working miracles? How much worse can it get when he's not here? 
So next question is, what do men say now? Men are still very vocal. They had an opinion in those days and have an opinion concerning the identity of Jesus in this day. Here's an example of some of what people say. The Jehovah's Witnesses. Michael, the archangel, is no other than the only begotten Son of God, now Jesus Christ. They, they, they believe that Jesus was the first created spirit being, and therefore he's not co-equal with God. He's not a co-equal or co-eternal part of the Godhead. So straight away, they're a cult. You don't have to go any further than that. The Mormons, the Mormon church views that Jesus and Satan, the spirit brothers and sons of God, God put forth his plan of salvation for the world, and Satan proposed his own plan. Jesus accepted the Father's plan and offered to implement it as the Savior. The Father chose Jesus, and the spirit of Jesus was given a bodily given a body through the Virgin Mary. He was crucified on a Roman cross and rose from the dead three days later to establish his deity. The character and life of Jesus is attainable by anyone who performs at such a righteous level. So in other words, you too can be a God. What does Islam say? It says in Surah 43, verse 59, I've taken the time to read the, um, the Quran once or twice, actually, and um, it's fairly heavy going for me because there's an awful lot of contradiction and crazy things in there. But this particular passage says, Jesus was no more than a mortal whom Allah favored and made an example to the Israelites. They are unbelievers who say God is Messiah, Mary's son. So can Christians and can Islam walk together? Can you have Chrislam? Definitely not. Jesus was a prophet, but he was not crucified on a cross. He will return, but he's not God. And I'm just thinking to James will know this on Burke Street on the corner there, on their little ba on their banner flying at the Muslim outreach. They say Jesus, beloved prophet of Islam. So they, they use things to um, lure people and pick out things like that just to lure people. But behind it all, they don't have the right view of Jesus. Hinduism. Jesus is one of the pantheon of millions of gods. Or even the Jewish Talmud. So the Talmud, again, um, you have will probably be able to speak more about this than me. It's the heart of rabbinic Judaism. And it's written after the time of Jesus was, was on earth. But there's things in that writing that I couldn't repeat here. And um, sufficient to say there's references to illegitimacy, to execution for sorcery, and to his being in hell. So it's totally blasphemous. So can we have association with that sort of belief? Again, definitely not. Now, people have a variety of opinions concerning Jesus Christ. And you'll hear many as you engage in the streets or in your day-to-day -day life. Some think he was a good man. Others think he was a great teacher. There's those who even say he was a, a Palestinian. And if you look at the, um, the web, you can look up a Palest or the Jesus at the checkpoint or Christ at the checkpoint. And you'll see that there are many Christians now who are going in that direction in an effort to placate political populism or, 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 or a particular view of, of um, the Arab-Israeli conflict. And I just would say, taking all of those previous things into consideration, is that not the sin of idolatry? When people try and make Jesus fit the mold 
whether it's a political ideology or other thing, instead of accepting what he says about himself in his word. So it'll do everything to, um, to make him palatable or to change who he actually is, apart from what it says in, in his word. So, so we need to be careful and stick by the word. And again, I would say we have to decide this morning or day to day, do you want to listen to people's opinions or listen to what the Bible has to say about Jesus? Now, just as in Jesus' time on earth, many in today's world ridicule and they blaspheme. And if you look at the entertainment industry, there's all sorts of uh, brave comedians, male and female. They can come out with all sorts of crudity. And they're very, very brave in blaspheming the name of Jesus or laughing at a Jesus or, or taking um, you know, scripture and, and turning it into a joke. But they don't have the courage just to criticize Muhammad. And um, you know, to me, that tells a lot about that type of approach or, or view. They don't have the courage to, to, um, to you know, Jesus is an easy, easy target, effectively. And uh, just as he was then, he was a, a suffering servant. And, uh, you know, if, if Jesus was here now, I think I've heard it said, they'd probably crucify him again. And the hearts of men, they haven't changed from those days. You know, I'd be very, very surprised if there's a comedian in the time of Jesus who would publicly make a joke about Caesar just as I doubt very much if somebody in Korea, North Korea, would get up and make a joke about King Kim Jong-un or whatever his name is. You know, the, you know it's easy to be brave and to, um, to criticize those things when there's no repercussions or, or, um, or punishment. I actually remember being in Thailand quite a few times working on different projects. And um, I remember being told before I went there, don't talk about the King of Thailand. I'll be very, very careful what you say. You know, don't bring it up in discussion because you'll very easily land, land, land yourself in trouble or even in prison. So, you know, you have to take those things into consideration. There are some people you cannot talk about or you might pay a price. Next question, what does the spiritual realm say? Again, we return to the word of God. God the Father. If you remember when Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan, in Matthew 3.17, just before he went into his public ministry, a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That same um, passage is almost repeated shortly after the theme passage here when we uh, see the transfiguration. And uh, many people, I included, believe that the transfiguration took place on Mount Hermon. So shortly after this episode of Caesarea Philippi, the transfiguration took place, and you read it in the following chapter. Again, heaven speaks and says, this is my beloved son, and whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him, is the extra little bit of text added. So almost the same. The angelic speaks. And we just finished celebrating Christmas in that time of year. And you'll remember there's a lot of activity spoken of in the Bible about that time. And one example is in Matthew 1.20. And the angel of the Lord visits Joseph. And it says there, But while he thought in these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, 
and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So Jesus, Jesus came for a purpose, and that was to save the world from the eternal consequences of sin. Not to be a great worldly king, a teacher, a humanitarian, solely a prophet, a Palestinian icon, or anything else that man wants to represent him or present him as. The demonic world even speaks in Scripture. We know that saying that after the deliverance of the demonic in the land of the Gadarenes, when they crossed the sea, across the Lake of Galilee, in Matthew 8, 29, it says there, And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Or you can read in James 2, 19, Thou believest that there is one God, Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. How foolish are we in this world or those who don't have got their eyes open to the Lord to serve Satan when he himself knows even his time is limited and his realm has been judged. And a, a greater judgment is going to come upon him in the time to come. We'll go on with our questions. What do you, some great saints of the New Testament say? You already mentioned Peter, Peter in that passage, who has that great revelation. What about John the Baptist, who we just mentioned? You read in John 1, and you can read the full text if you like, in 29 to 34, but it opens with saying that the next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And he concludes in verse 34, further down the passage, and he says, And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Even the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, shortly after his Damascus Road conversion, and you can read it in Acts 9, verse 20, it says he straightway preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Most importantly, what does Jesus say about himself? Consider what he has to say. Now, when I read these things, just compare back to some of the things or the opinions of what the world says, be they the Mormons or Islam or, or whatever. Here's what Jesus says about himself. In response to Philip's request, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficed it us. In John 14, 9, Jesus says, He that had seen me had seen the Father. We could go with a few more. When the Jews thought that Jesus was committing blasphemy and they were about to stone him, in John 10.30 he says, I and my Father are one. Then we have the great ego, I me, or I am passages of Scripture. John 8.58, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. This is one that can be used for the Jehovah's Witnesses. When Thomas was concerned about knowing, not knowing, sorry, not that passage, that's further on. When Thomas was concerned about not knowing the way we have, or the way we have that, um, he didn't know the way effectively. Jesus replies with a wonderful scripture in 14.6. He says unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto me, unto the, unto the Father, but by me. I am, I am, I am, ego I am. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. 8.12, I am the light of the world. 10.9, I am the door. 10.11, I am the good shepherd. 
10.36, I am the son of God. 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. And 15, verse 1 of John, I am the true vine. If all of that was not enough to convince you of the deity of Jesus, you could try reading the book of Colossians and what Paul wrote in the first couple of chapters there concerning the identity of Jesus. And I would say after all of that, you'd have to be willfully blind to deny the weight and the number of the scriptures that testify concerning Jesus. Here's a quote, and I guess many here would have heard this before, who know C.S. Lewis. He said this, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your own choice. Either this was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let none of us come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Very powerful piece of writing. There's some other examples in the Bible. Examples where an encounter with Jesus changed the individual's life. Just as we could say it changed our lives this morning for all of us here who are truly born again. Simeon. The Holy Spirit told him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord Jesus. And we read there in Luke 2, verse 28 to 32. Then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace. According to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Nathaniel, he's called to follow Jesus in John 1.49. Nathaniel answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Even Jesus, and Jesus encountered the woman at the well in Sychar. You can look at our response. And I took a pause here just to think, you know, there's an awful lot of talk in this world about um, patriarchy and dismantling male patriarchy and, you know, all sorts of isms and beliefs to try to draw people off. But, um, you know, even considering all that and looking at what Jesus, Jesus had a lot to say to women. And um, he very much related to the women of the world in that day. You read in verse 429 of John what that woman at the well said. She says, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? perhaps the first Gentile evangelist, without to relay and report what she just encountered. I say something here to the younger women today, or even if perhaps even men are drawn, drawn aside by this, that you know, not to get deceived by the enemy. Men are not the enemy. The male patriarchy is not the enemy. What would I say? Our history is not the enemy. There's only one enemy, and that enemy is Satan. Same enemy for women, the same enemy for man. And that's where our attention should be directed, not to each other, not to um, going off in different directions about 
you know, trying to find faults for why things are the way they are, or digging up history, or even trying to try and revision, trying to rewrite history. The enemy is Satan. And uh, we know the scriptures where it talks about the principalities and the powers in high places and who's really behind what's going on in the world, who's prodding and stirring up people, who's bringing conflict. It's Satan, his dominion. Another woman, Martha, after the raising up of Lazarus, in John eleven twenty seven, she says unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And the one I mentioned earlier, I just made a mistake. That's a good one for the Jehovah's Witnesses. Thomas, who had not witnessed the risen Jesus on the first occasion, and after finally seeing Jesus and touching his scars, he says in John 20, 24 to 28, he concludes with, My Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't deny it. He accepts it. And uh, I don't think the Jehovah's Witnesses can actually answer that. You may twist the scripture or try to change it, but it's pretty convincing. So when you stand back and consider all of the testimony in the Bible, and you'd say it was a court of law, you'd have to say that the case for Jesus and who he says he is, is most compelling. A couple more questions. What about us here today? So we've heard about examples from man today. And we've seen that among humans, there are those who deny that Jesus is the Son of God and the only way to salvation. And we have the testimony over the lives that have changed, other lives that have been changed by him that indicate he is who he claims to be. We've heard what God Almighty said about him, how he was pleased with his only son. We've heard what the angels have had to say about him. And you've even heard what the kingdom of darkness or the realm of darkness has had to say about him. They fear him. They know their destiny. You've heard enough to be convinced that Jesus Christ is summoned this morning about whom you have to make a decision. If you bear that in mind, what does your heart say? Has Jesus, for us believers here this morning, has Jesus become familiar? And I use the word familiar in the terms of um, are we blasé or are we just taking him for granted? Or we just still, do we still hold him in the place of high reverence that he deserves? You know, there's a saying in the English language, familiarity breeds contempt. That's something we should never have to say about Jesus, that um, we should always hold him in the same stead and love him and honor him and obey him and worship him. What else have we covered? You know, other questions. You know, is he just a baby at Christmas? Is that the only reason to, to talk about Jesus and bring him out into discussion? Or Easter? Is he crucified? You know, was he really crucified? Is it a story? Or is he the risen Lord of your life? Is he a way to God? Among many other ways, or is he the way, deep through and the life? Is he a good man, a great teacher, and a prophet? Or is he the son of God and your only hope of salvation this morning? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he your Lord? And the question would be, what is the testimony 
of your heart today. Now, are you trusting this morning alone in him for the salvation of your soul? Or have you faced a time when you saw yourself as a sinner and Jesus Christ as your only hope? Two well-known salvation passages. Romans 10 verse 9, it says, that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt believe in thine heart that God had raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's a matter of faith. For whosoever, in Romans 10, 13, shall call upon the name of the Lord, not may or could or should, but shall be saved. Very, very conclusive statement. And just to round up this morning, again, the opening question, who is Jesus to you? Now, is the answer you have, is it an answer that's going to guarantee you a place in his presence in eternity before you leave this world? And none of us know when that time is going to be. Do you think back to what I spoke about at the start, about the, that uh, grotto, that opening, which represents the, the entrance to Hades? Hades? Terrible thing to have to say, but could that be your destination this morning if you deny Jesus and deny his, his offer, his outreached arms to you to, to see you saved? That place of the underworld, which will be Gehenna, will be the lake of fire one day. They're sobering thoughts. Do any of us this morning have an answer that pleases the flesh, the world, or the devil? Or is the answer we have the one that pleases the Lord? Very, very straightforward question this morning for one and all of us. Are you actually saved? Have you made that commitment? Have you put faith in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done? Do you want to be saved? Do you think that you can just keep going on and that, you know, you'll live until the day comes when you decide yourself that I'll make that decision. Not knowing that you even have tomorrow, that's not even guaranteed. All very important questions. Peter got the answer right because he had a revelation from God. The only thing that will bring you to the Lord this morning is the Lord working on your heart because he draws you. That's not something you can pick the time of. That can be one occasion or one moment in your life that can pass and it may not come again. And we often hear it said that now is the day of salvation. So I wouldn't normally put a, I don't do altar calls normally and not in Australia anyway, but I'd put a call out this morning that, you know, in terms of eternity and in terms of what lays ahead, embarrassment or shame is nothing. You know, if you don't know the Lord this morning, come forth. You know, come up and, um, and uh, we'll pray with you and do what it says here. Put your trust in the Lord. Have that faith. Believe on him and you'll be saved. John 6 verse 44 says, No man who come to me except the Father which had sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So we just can't pick the time ourselves. And go back again to our opening question. What should I do with Jesus? Or we could reverse that question and say, one day, what will Jesus do with me? Will he say, welcome, faithful servant? Or will he say, depart, 
the worker of iniquity. And I would like it to be the former for all of us. Amen. I'll just close on a, on a little um, illustration which um, I found. And it's by a gentleman called Alexander Mackenzie. He's a 19th century theologian, an American theologian. And he wrote this, and I just thought it was a, a good thing to um, lodge in your memory. It says, in my earlier days, yet I was old enough to be a lecturer in the Andover Theological Seminary, I wanted a new way of teaching my students the doctrine of Christ. I thought I would tell them to get a sheet of paper and divide it into three columns. In the first column, they were to write every passage where Christ is spoken of as God-man. In the second column, all the passages where Christ is spoken of as God alone. And in the third, all the passages where he's spoken of as a man alone. I went to work. I think I have that paper now. It is badly balanced. The first column and the second column are filled right up. But as to the third column, I never found a passage speaking of Christ as man alone. Do you remember any such passage? So he's not just a man. He's not just a, a holy man or a great teacher. I think from the scriptures we read this morning, there's many, many more. If your heart is open, you'd say that, that Jesus is God. He is the Savior. He is the only way to salvation. And, um, you know, take heed this morning if you don't know him. So the Lord bless you all this morning. And uh, may the Lord bless you in the week ahead. And uh, that invitation, if, if anybody this morning here doesn't know the Lord Jesus or is not saved, or um, if you've fallen back, if you've backslidden, which is possible for all of us to do, including myself and anyone else that comes up here, we can all slip. Um, maybe it's a good time now just to uh, come before the Lord. And uh, let's say I don't do this often, but I think maybe, maybe because it's the beginning of a new year, those of us who'd like to come forward, we can get on our knees and we can just um, you know, ask the Lord to invigorate us and to fill us afresh for those of us who are flagging. And for those of us who don't know the Lord, that the Lord would reveal himself, as we said here, that the Father would draw those individuals to him and that they would make that wonderful decision to be saved in Jesus' name. So I'm going to get on my knees in front here. If anybody likes to join me, please come along and uh, let's spend a few moments in prayer. Amen. Thank you, Lord.